Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Chapter 17 In about a minute somebody spoke out of a window without putting his head out, and says, "'Be done, boys. Who's there?' I says, "'It's me.' "'Who's me?' "'George Jackson, sir.' "'What do you want?' I don't want nothing, sir. I only want to go along by, but the dogs won't let me. What are you prowling around here this time of night for, hey? I want prowling around, sir. I fell overboard off of the steamboat. Oh, you did, did you? Strike a light there, somebody. What did you say your name was? George Jackson, sir. I'm only a boy. Look here. If you're telling the truth, you needn't be afraid. Nobody'll hurt you. But don't try to budge. Stand right where you are. Rouse out Bob and Tom, some of you, and fetch the guns. George Jackson, is there anybody with you? No, sir, nobody. I heard the people stirring around in the house now and see a light. The man sung out, Snatch that light away, Betsy, you old fool. Ain't you got any sense? Put it on the floor behind the front door. Bob, if you and Tom are ready, take your places. All ready. Now, George Jackson, do you know the Shepherdsons? No, sir. I never heard of them. Well, that may be so, and it mayn't. Now, all ready. Step forward, George Jackson. And mind, don't you hurry. Come mighty slow. If there's anybody with you, let him keep back. If he shows himself, he'll be shot. Come along now. Come slow. Push the door open yourself. Just enough to squeeze in, do you hear? I didn't hurry. I couldn't if I wanted to. I took one slow step at a time, and there weren't a sound, only I thought I could hear my heart. The dogs were as still as the humans, but they followed a little behind me. When I got to the three log doorsteps I heard them unlocking and unbarring and unbolting. I put my hand on the door and pushed it a little, and a little more till somebody said, There, that's enough. Put your head in. I done it but I judged they would take it off. The candle was on the floor, and there they all was, and looking at me, and me at them for about a quarter of a minute. Three big men with guns pointed at me, which made me wince, I tell you. The oldest, gray and about sixty, the other two thirty or more, all of them fine and handsome, and the sweetest old gray-haired lady, and back of her two young women which I couldn't see right well. The old gentleman says, "'There, I reckon it's all right. Come in.' As soon as I was in, the old gentleman he locked the door and barred it and bolted it, and told the young men to come in with their guns, 
and they all went in a big parlour that had a new rag carpet on the floor, and got together in a corner that was out of the range of the front windows. There wa not none on the side. They held the candle and took a good look at me, and all said, "'Why, he ain't a Shepherdson. No, there ain't any Shepherdson about him.' Then the old man said he hoped I wouldn't mind being searched for arms, because he didn't mean no harm by it, it was only to make sure. But he didn't pry into my pockets, but only felt outside with his hands, and said it was all right. He told me to make myself easy and at home, and tell me all about myself. But the old lady says, "'Why, bless you, Saul, the poor thing's as wet as he can be, and don't you reckon it may be he's hungry?' "'True for you, Rachel, I forgot.' So the old lady says, "'Betsy,' this was a nigger woman, "'you fly round and get him something to eat as quick as you can, poor thing, and one of you girls go and wake up Buck and tell him, oh, here he is hisself." Buck, take this little stranger and get the wet clothes off of him, and dress him up in some of yours that's dry." Buck looked about as old as me, thirteen or fourteen or along there, although he's a little bigger than me. He hadn't on anything but a shirt, and he was very frowsy-headed. He came in gapping and digging one fist into his eyes, and he was dragging a gun along with the other one. He says, "'Ain't there no Shepherdsons around?' They said, no, t'was a false alarm. Well, he says, if they'd have been some, I reckon I'd have got one. They all laughed, and Bob says, Why, Buck, they might have scalped us all. You've been so slow in coming. Well, nobody come after me, and it ain't right I'm always kept down. I don't get no show. Never mind, Buck, my boy, says the old man. You'll have show enough all in good time, don't you fret about that. Go along with you now, and do as your mother told you." When we got upstairs to his room he got me a coarse shirt and a roundabout and pants of his, and I put them on. While I was at it he asked me what my name was, but before I could tell him he started to tell me about a blue jay and a young rabbit he had catched on the woods day before yesterday, and he asked me where Moses was when the candle went out. I said I didn't know. I hadn't heard about it before, no way. "'Well, guess,' he says. "'How am I going to guess,' says I, "'when I never heard tell of it before?' "'But you can guess, can't you? It's just as easy.' "'Which candle?' I says. "'Why, any candle,' he says. "'I don't know where he was,' says I. "'Where was he?' Why, he was in the dark. That's where he was. Well, if you knowed where he was, what did you ask me for? Why, blame it, it's a riddle, don't you see? Say, how long are you going to stay there? You got to stay always. We can just have booming times. They don't have no school now. Do you own a dog? I got a dog. He'll go in the river and bring out chips that you throw in. Do you like to comb up Sundays and all that kind of foolishness? You bet I don't, but Ma, she makes me. Confound these old britches. I reckon I'd better put em on, but I'd rather not. It's so warm. Are you all ready? All right. Come along, old hoss. Cold corn pone, cold corn beef, 
butter and buttermilk that is what they had for me down there and there ain't nothing better that ever i've come across yet buck and his ma and all of em smoked cob pipes except the nigger woman which was gone and the two young women they all smoked and talked and i eat and talked the young women had quilts around them and their hair down their backs they all asked me questions and i told them how pap and me and all the family was living on a little farm down at the bottom of arkansas and my sister mary ann run off and got married and never was heard of no more and bill went to hunt them and he warn't heard of no more and tom and mort died and then there warn't nobody but just me and pap left he was just trimmed down to nothing on account of his troubles so when he died i took what there was left because the farm didn't belong to us started up the river deck passage and fell overboard and that was how i come to be here so they said i could have a home there as long as i wanted it then it was most daylight and everybody went to bed and i went to bed with buck and when i waked up in the morning drat it all i had forgot what my name was so i laid there about an hour trying to think and when buck waked up i says can you spell buck yes he says i bet you can't spell my name says i i bet you what you dare i can says he all right says i go ahead g e o r g e j a x o n there now he says well says i you done it but i didn't think you could it ain't no slouch of a name to spell right off without studying i set it down private because somebody might want me to spell it next and so i wanted to be handy with it and rattle it off just like i was used to it it was a mighty nice family and a mighty nice house too i hadn't seen no house out in the country before that was so nice and had so much style it didn't have an iron latch on the front door, nor a wooden one with a buckskin string, but a brass knob to turn, the same as houses in town. There warn't no bed in the parlor, nor a sign of a bed, but heaps of parlors and towns has beds in em. There was a big fireplace that was bricked on the bottom, and the bricks was kept clean and red by pouring water on them and scrubbing them with another brick. Sometimes they wash em over with red water paint that they call spanish brown same as they do in town they had big brass dog irons that could hold up a saw log there was a clock on the middle of the mantelpiece with a picture of a town painted on the bottom half of the glass front and a round place in the middle of it for the sun and you could see the pendulum swinging behind it it was beautiful to hear that clock tick and sometimes when one of these peddlers had been along and scoured her up and got her in good shape she would start in and strike a hundred and fifty before she got duckered out. They wouldn't took any money for her. Well, there was a big outlandish parrot on each side of the clock, made out of something like chalk, and painted up gaudy. By one of the parrots was a cat made of crockery, and a crockery dog by the other, and when you pressed down on them they squeaked, but didn't open their mouths nor look different nor interested. They squeaked through underneath. There was a couple of big wild turkey wing fans spread out behind these things. 
On the table in the middle of the room was a kind of a lovely crockery basket that had apples and oranges and peaches and grapes piled up in it, which was much redder and yellower and prettier than real ones is, but they weren't real because you could see there was pieces that got chipped off and showed the white chalk, or whatever it was, underneath. This table had a cover made out of a beautiful oilcloth, with a red and blue spread-eagle painted on it, and a painted border all around. It come all the way from Philadelphia, they said. There was some books, too, piled up perfectly exact on each corner of the table. One was a big family Bible full of pictures. One was Pilgrim's Progress, about a man that left his family, it didn't say why. I read considerable in it now and then. The statements was interesting, but tough. Another was Friendship's Offering, full of beautiful stuff and poetry, but I didn't read the poetry. Another was Henry Clay's Speeches, and another was Dr. Gunn's Family Medicine, which told you all about what to do if a body was sick or dead. There was a hymn-book, and a lot of other books, and there was nice split-bottom chairs, and perfectly sound, too, not bagged down in the middle and busted like an old basket. They had pictures hung on the walls, mainly Washingtons and Lafayettes, and battles, and Highland Marys, and one called Signing the Declaration. There were some that they called crayons, which one of the daughters which was dead made her own self when she was only fifteen years old. They was different from any pictures I ever see before, blacker mostly than is common. One was a woman in a slim black dress, belted small under the armpits, with bulges like a cabbage in the middle of the sleeves, and a large black scoop-shovel bonnet with a black veil, and white slim ankles crossed about with black tape and very wee black slippers, like a chisel, and she was leaning pensive on a tombstone on her right elbow, under a weeping willow, and her other hand hanging down her side holding a white handkerchief and a reticule, and underneath the picture it said, Shall I never see thee more, alas! Another one was a young lady with her hair all combed up straight to the top of her head, and nodded there in front of a comb like a chair-back and she was crying into a handkerchief, and had a dead bird laying on its back in her other hand with its heels up. And underneath the picture it said, I shall never hear thy sweet chirrup more, alas. And there was one where a young lady was at a window looking up at the moon, and tears running down her cheeks, and she had an open letter in one hand with black sealing wax showing on one edge of it and she was mashing a locket with a chain to it against her mouth, and underneath the picture it said, And art thou gone, yes, thou art gone, alas! And these was all nice pictures, I reckon, but I didn't somehow seem to take to them, because if ever I was down a little they always give me the fantods. Everybody was sorry she died, because she had laid out a lot more of these pictures to do and a body could see by what she had done what they had lost. But I reckoned that with her disposition she was having a better time in the graveyard. She was at work on what they said was her greatest picture when she took sick, and every day and every night it was her prayer to be allowed to live till she got it done, but she never got the chance. It was a picture of a young woman in long white gown, standing on the rail of a bridge all ready to jump off 
with her hair all down her back, and looking up to the moon, and with the tears running down her face, and she had two arms folded across her breast, and two arms stretched out in front, and two more reaching up towards the moon, and the idea was to see which pair would look best, and then scratch out all the other arms. But, as I was saying, she died before she got her mind made up, and now they kept this picture over the head of the bed in her room, and every time her birthday come they hung flowers on it. Other times it was hid with a little curtain. The young woman in the picture had a kind of a nice sweet face, but there were so many arms it made her look too spidery, seemed to me. This young girl kept a scrapbook while she was alive, and used to pace obituaries and accidents and cases of patient suffering in it out of the Presbyterian Observer, and write poetry after them out of her own head. It was very good poetry. This is what she wrote down about a boy by the name of Stephen Dowling Botts that fell down a well and was drowned. Ode to Stephen Dowling Botts, deceased. And did young Stephen sicken? And did young Stephen die? And did the sad hearts thicken? And did the mourners cry? No, such was not the face of young Stephen Dowling Botts. Though sad hearts round him thickened, Twas not from sickness shots. No whooping cough did rack his frame, Nor measles drear with spots. Not these impaired the sacred name Of Stephen Dowling Botts. Despised love struck not with woe That head of curly knots, Nor stomach troubles laid him low, Young Stephen Dowling Botts. Oh, no, then list with tearful eye, Whilst I his fate do tell. His soul did from this cold world fly, by falling down a well. They got him out and emptied him. Alas, it was too late. His spirit was gone for to sport aloft in the realms of the good and great. If Emmeline Grangerford could make poetry like that before she was fourteen, there ain't no telling what she could have done by and by. Buck said she could rattle off poetry like nothing. She didn't ever have to stop to think. He said she would slap down a line, and if she couldn't find anything to rhyme with it, would just scratch it out and slap down another one, and go ahead. She warn't particular. She could write about anything you choose to give her to write about, just so it was sadful. Every time a man died, or a woman died, or a child died, she would be on hand with her tribute before he was cold. She called them tributes. The neighbor said it was the doctor first, then Emmeline, then the undertaker. The undertaker never got in ahead of Emmeline but once, and then she hung fire on a rhyme for the dead person's name, which was Whistler. She warn't ever the same after that. She never complained, but she kind of pined away and did not live long. Poor thing, many's the time I made myself go up to the little room that used to be hers, and get out her poor old scrapbook, and read in it when her pictures had been aggravating me and I had soured on her a little. I liked all that family, dead ones and all, and weren't going to let anything come between us. Poor Emmeline made poetry about all the dead people when she was alive, and it didn't seem right that there weren't nobody to make some about her now she was gone. So I tried to sweat out a verse or two myself, but I couldn't seem to make it go somehow. They kept Emmeline's room trim and nice, 
and all the things fixed in it just the way she liked to have them when she was alive, and nobody ever slept there. The old lady took care of the room herself, though there was plenty of niggers, and she sewed there a good deal, and read her Bible there mostly. Well, as I was going to say about the parlour, there was beautiful curtains on the windows, wide, with pictures painted on them of castles with vines all down the walls, and cattle coming down to drink. There was a little old piano, too, that had tin pans in it, I reckon, and nothing was ever so lovely as to hear the young ladies sing, The Last Link is Broken, and play The Battle of Prague on it. The walls of all the rooms was plastered, and most had carpets on the floors, and the whole house was whitewashed on the outside. It was a double house, and the big open place betwixt them was roofed and floored, and sometimes a table was set there in the middle of the day, and it was a cool, comfortable place. Nothing couldn't be better, and weren't the cooking good, and just bushels of it, too. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Chapter 18 Colonel Grangerford was a gentleman, you see. He was a gentleman all over and so was his family. He was well born, as the saying is, and that's worth as much in a man as it is in a horse, so the widow Douglas said, and nobody ever denied that she was of the first aristocracy in our town. And Pap, he always said it, too, though he warn't no more quality than a mud-cat himself. Colonel Grangerford was very tall and very slim, and had a darkish, paley complexion, not a sign of red in it anywheres. He was clean-shaved every morning all over his thin face, and he had the thinnest kind of lips, and the thinnest kind of nostrils, and a high nose, and heavy eyebrows, and the blackest kind of eyes sunk so deep back that they seemed like they was looking out of caverns at you, as you may say. His forehead was high, and his hair was black and straight, and hung to his shoulders. His hands was long and thin and every day of his life he put on a clean shirt and a full suit from head to foot, made out of linen so white it hurt your eyes to look at it. And on Sundays he wore a blue tailcoat with brass buttons on it. He carried a mahogany cane with a silver head to it. There warn't no frivolousness about him, not a bit, and he warn't ever loud. He was as kind as he could be. You could feel that, you know, and so you had confidence. Sometimes he smiled, and it was good to see. But when he straightened himself up like a liberty pole, and the lightning begun to flicker out from under his eyebrows, you wanted to climb a tree first, and find out what the matter was afterwards. He did never have to tell anybody to mind their manners. Everybody was always good-mannered where he was. Everybody loved to have him around, too. He was sunshine most always. I mean he made it seem like good weather. When he turned into a cloud bank it was awful dark for half a minute, and that was enough. There wouldn't nothing go wrong again for a week. 
When him and the old lady came down in the morning, all the family got up out of their chairs and gave them good day, and didn't sit down again till they had sat down. When Tom and Bob went to the sideboard where the decanter was, and mixed a glass of bitters and handed it to him, and he held it in his hand and waited till Tom's and Bob's was mixed, and then they bowed and said, Our duty to you, sir and madam and they bowed the least bit in the world and said thank you and so they drank all three and bob and tom poured a spoonful of water on the sugar and the mite of whiskey or apple brandy in the bottom of their tumblers and give it to me and buck and we drank to the old people too bob was the oldest and tom next tall beautiful men with very broad shoulders and brown faces and long black hair and black eyes they dressed in white linen from head to foot, like the old gentleman, and wore broad Panama hats. Then there was Miss Charlotte. She was twenty-five, and tall and proud and grand, but as good as she could be when she weren't stirred up. But when she was, she had a look that would make you wilt in your tracks, like her father. She was beautiful. So was her sister, Miss Sophia, but it was a different kind. She was gentle and sweet like a dove, and she was only twenty. Each person had their own nigger to wait on them, Buck too. My nigger had a monstrous easy time, because I warn't used to having anybody do anything for me, but Buck's was on the jump most of the time. This was all there was of the family now, but there used to be more. Three sons, they got killed, and Emmeline that died. The old gentleman owned a lot of farms and over a hundred niggers. Sometimes a stack of people would come there, horseback, from ten or fifteen mile around, and stay five or six days, and have such junketings round about and on the river, and dances and picnics in the woods daytimes, and balls at the house nights. These people was mostly kinfolks of the family. The men brought their guns with them. It was a handsome lot of quality, I tell you. There was another clan of aristocracy around there, five or six families, mostly of the name of Shepherdson. They was as high-toned and well-born and rich and grand as the tribe of Grangerfords. The Shepherdsons and Grangerfords used the same steamboat landing, which was about two mile above our house. So sometimes when I went up there with a lot of our folks, I used to see a lot of the Shepherdsons there on their fine horses. One day Buck and me was away out in a woods hunting, and heard a horse coming. We was crossing the road. Buck says, Quick, jump for the woods. We done it, and then peeped down the woods through the leaves. Pretty soon a splendid young man come galloping down the road, setting his horse easy and looking like a soldier. He had his gun across his pommel. I had seen him before. It was young Harney Shepherdson. I heard Buck's gun go off at my ear, and Harney's hat tumbled off from his head. He grabbed his gun and rode straight to the place where we was hid. But we didn't wait. We started through the woods on a run. The words weren't thick, so I looked over my shoulder to dodge the bullet, and twice I seen Harney cover Buck with his gun and then he rode away the way he come. To get his hat I reckon, but I couldn't see. We never stopped running till we got home. The old gentleman's eyes blazed a minute. Twas pleasure mainly, I judged. 
Then his face sort of smoothed down, and he says, kind of gentle, "'I don't like that shooting from behind a bush. Why didn't you step into the road, my boy?' "'The Shepherdsons don't, father. They always take advantage.' Miss Charlotte, she held her head up like a queen while Buck was telling his tale, and her nostrils spread and her eyes snapped. The two young men looked dark, but never said nothing. Miss Sophia, she turned pale, but the color come back when she found the man weren't hurt. Soon as I could get Buck down by the corn-cribs under the trees by ourselves, I says, "'Did you want to kill him, Buck?' "'Well, I bet I did.' What did he do to you? Him? He never done nothing to me. Well, then, what did you want to kill him for? Why, nothing. Only it's on account of the feud. What's a feud? Why, where was you raised? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. Tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man, and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers, on both sides, go for one another. Then the cousins chip in, and by and by everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow, and takes a long time. Has this one been going on long, Buck? Well, I should reckon it started thirty year ago or summers along there. There was trouble about something, and then a lawsuit to settle it, and the suit went again one of the men, and so he up and shot the man that won the suit, which he would naturally do, of course. Anybody would. What was the trouble about, Buck? Land? I reckon maybe. I don't know. Well, who done the shooting? Was it a Grangerford or a Shepherdson? Laws, how do I know? It was so long ago. Don't anybody know? Oh, yes, Pa knows, I reckon, and some of the other old people, but they don't know now what the row was about in the first place. Has there been many killed, Puck? Yes, right smart chance of funerals, but they don't always kill. Paul's got a few buckshot in him, but he don't mind it cause he don't weigh much. Anyway. Bob's been carved up some with a buoy, and Tom's been hurt once or twice. Has anybody been killed this year, Buck? Yes, we got one, and they got one. About three months ago my cousin Bud, fourteen year old, was riding through the woods on the other side of the river, and didn't have no weapon with him, which was blame foolishness, and in a lonesome place he hears a horse a-coming behind him and sees old Baldy Shepherdson a-linkin' after him with his gun in his hand and his white hair a-flyin' in the wind. And instead of jumpin' off and takin' to the brush, Bud loud he could outrun him. So they had it nip and tuck for five mile or more, the old man a-gainin' all the time. So at last Bud seen it warn't any use, so he stopped and faced around so as to have the bullet holes in front, you know. And the old man he rode up and shot him down but he didn't get much chance to enjoy his luck, for inside of a week our folks laid him out. I reckon that old man was a coward, Buck. I reckon he warn't a coward, not by blame sight. There ain't a coward amongst them, Shepherdsons, 
not a one. And there ain't no cowards amongst the Grangerfords either. Why, that old man kept up his end in a fight one day for half an hour against three Grangerfords, and come out winner. They was all a horseback. He lit off of his horse and got behind a little woodpile, and kept his horse before him to stop the bullets. But the Grangerfords stayed on their horses, and capered around the old man, and peppered away at him, and he peppered away at them. Him and his horse both went home pretty leaky and crippled, but the Grangerfords had to be fetched home, and one of them was dead, and another died the next day. No, sir, if a body's out hunting for cowards, he don't want to fool away any time amongst them Shepherdsons, because they don't breed any of that kind. Next Sunday we all went to church, about three mile, everybody a horseback. The men took their guns along, so did Buck, and kept them between their knees or stood them handy against the wall. The Shepherdsons done the same. It was pretty ornery preaching, all about brotherly love and such like tiresomeness, but everybody said it was a good sermon, and they all talked it over going home, and had such a powerful lot to say about faith and good works and free grace and pre-for-or-destination, and I don't know what all, that it did seem to me to be one of the roughest Sundays I had run across yet. About an hour after dinner everybody was dozing around, some in their chairs and some in their rooms, and it got to be pretty dull. Buck and a dog were stretched out on the grass in the sun, sound asleep. I went up to our room, and judged I would take a nap myself. I found that sweet Miss Sophia standing in her door, which was next to ours, and she took me in her room and shut the door very soft, and asked me if I liked her and I said I did. She asked me if I would do something for her and not tell anybody, and I said I would. Then she said she'd forgot her testament and left it in the seat at church between two other books, and would I slip out quiet and go there and fetch it to her and not say nothing to nobody. I said I would. So I slid out and slipped off up the road, and there weren't anybody at the church, except maybe a hog or two for there weren't any lock on the door, and hogs lights a punchin' floor in summertime because it's cool. If you notice, most folks don't go to church only when they've got to, but a hog is different. Says I to myself, something's up. It ain't natural for a girl to be in such a sweat about a testament. So I give it a shake, and out drops a little piece of paper with half-past two wrote on it with a pencil. I ransacked it but I couldn't find anything else. I couldn't make anything out of that, so I put the paper in the book again, and when I got home and upstairs there was Miss Sophia in her door waiting for me. She pulled me in and shut the door. Then she looked in the testament till she found the paper, and as soon as she read it she looked glad, and before a body could think she grabbed me and gave me a squeeze, and said I was the best boy in the world, and not to tell anybody. She was mighty red in the face for a minute, and her eyes lighted up, and it made her powerful pretty. I was a good deal astonished, but when I got my breath I asked her what the paper was about, and she asked me if I would read it, I said no, and she asked me if I could read writing, and I told her, no, only coarse hand, and then she said the paper warn't anything but a bookmark to keep her place, 
and I might go and play now. I went off down the river, studying over this thing. Pretty soon I noticed that my nigger was following along behind. When we was out of sight of the house, he looked back and around a second, and then comes a-running and says, "'Ma's George, if you come down into the swamp, I'll show you a whole stack of water moccasins.' Thinks I, that's mighty curious. He said that yesterday. He ought to know about he don't love water moccasins enough to go round hunting for them. What is he up to anyway? So I says, All right, trot ahead. I followed a half a mile. Then he struck out over the swamp and waded ankle deep as much as another half mile. We come to a little flat piece of land which was dry and very thick with trees and bushes and vines, and he says, "'You shove right in there just a few steps, Mars George. That's where they is. I'd seen em before. I don't care to see em no more.' Then he slopped right along and went away, and pretty soon the trees hit him. I poked into the place a ways, and come to a little open patch as big as a bedroom, all hung around with vines and found a man laying there asleep, and by jings it was my old Jim. I waked him up, and I reckon it was going to be a grand surprise to him to see me again, but it warn't. He nearly cried he was so glad, but he warn't surprised. Said he swum along behind me that night and heard me yell every time, but dasn't answer, because he didn't want nobody to pick him up and take him into slavery again says he. I got hurt a little, and couldn't swim fast, so I was a considerable ways behind you towards the last. When you landed I reckoned I could catch up with you on the land, without having to shout at you, but when I see that house I begin to go slow. I was off too fur to hear what they say to you. I was afraid of the dogs. But when it was all quiet again, I knowed you's in the house, so I struck out for the woods to wait for day. Early in the morning some of the niggers come along, gwine to the fields, and they took me and showed me this place, where the dogs can't track me on accounts of the water, and they brings me truck to eat every night, and tells me how you's a-getting along. Why didn't you tell my Jack to fetch me here sooner, Jim? Well, twarn't no use to disturb you, Huck, till we could do something. But we's all right now. I've been a buying pots and pans and vittles, as I got a chance, and a patching up the raft nights when What raft, Jim? Our old raft. You mean to say our old raft warn't smashed all to flinders? No, she warn't. She was tore up a good deal. One end of her was but there weren't no great arm done, only our traps was most all loss. If we hadn't dived so deep and swum so fur under water, and the night hadn't been so dark, and we weren't so skeered, and been such punkin heads, as the saying is, we'd a see the raft. But it's just as well we didn't, cause now she's all fixed up again most as good as new, and we's got a new lot of stuff in the place of what is lost. Why, how did you get hold of the raft again, Jim? Did you catch her? How I gwine to catch her, and I out in the woods. No, some of the niggers found her catched on a snag along here in the bend, and they hid her in a crick amongst the willows, 
and dey was so much jawin about which of em she belonged to de most that i come to hear about it pooty soon and i ups and settles de trouble by tellin em she don't belong to none of em but to you and me and i asked em if dey gwine to grab a young white gentleman's property and get a hidin for it den i gin em ten cents apiece and dey is mighty well satisfied and wish some more rafts had come along and make em rich again dey is mighty good to me dese niggers is and whatever i wants em to do for me i don't have to ask em twice honey dat jack's a good nigger and pooty smart yes he is he ain't ever told me you was here told me to come and he'd show me a lot of water moccasins if anything happens he ain't mixed up in it he can say he never seen us together and it'll be the truth i don't want to talk much about the next day i reckon i'll cut it pretty short i waked up about dawn and was a-going to turn over and go to sleep again when i noticed how still it was didn't seem to be anybody stirring that warn't usual next i noticed that buck was up and gone well i gets up a-wanderin and goes downstairs nobody around everything is still as a mouse just the same outside thinks i what does it mean down by the woodpile i comes across my jack and says what's it all about says he don't you know mars george no says i i, I don't well den miss sophia's run off deed she has she run off in the night sometime nobody don't know just when run off to get married to dat young harness shepherdson you know leastwise so dey speck the family found it out about half an hour ago maybe a little more and i tell you dey warn't no time's loss such another hurryin up guns and hosses you never see the women folks has gone for to stir up the relations and old marsall and the boys took the guns and rode up the river road for to try and catch that young man and kill him fore he can get across the river with miss sophia i reckon dey's going to be mighty rough times buck went off without waking me up well i reckon he did dey weren't going to mix you up in it mars buck he loaded up his gun and loud he's going to fetch home a shepherdson or bust well there'll be plenty of em dar i reckon and you bet you he'll fetch one if he gets a chance i took up the river road as hard as i could get by and by i begin to hear guns a good ways off when i come in sight of the log store and the woodpile where the steamboats lands i worked along under the trees and brush till i got to a good place and then i clumb up into the forks of a cottonwood that was out of reach and watched there was a wood rank four foot high little ways in front of the tree and first i was going to hide behind that but maybe it was luckier i didn't there was four or five men cavortin around on their horses in the open place before the log store cussin and yellin and tryin to get at a couple of young chaps that was behind the wood rank alongside of the steamboat landin but they couldn't come it every time one of them showed himself on the river side of the woodpile he got shot at the two boys were squattin back to back behind the pile so they could watch both ways by and by the men stopped cavortin around and yellin they started ridin towards the store 
Then up gets one of the boys, draws a steady bead over the wood rank, and drops one of them out of his saddle. All the men jumped off their horses and grabbed the hurt one, and started to carry him to the store. And that minute the two boys started on the run. They got halfway to the tree I was in before the men noticed. Then the men see them, and jumped on their horses and took out after them. They gained on the boys, but it didn't do no good. The boys had too good a start. They got to the woodpile that was in front of my tree, and slipped in behind it, and so they had the bulge on the men again. One of the boys was Buck, and the other was a slim young chap about nineteen years old. Men ripped around a while and then rode away. As soon as they was out of sight, I sung out to Buck and told him. He didn't know what to make of my voice coming out of the tree at first. He was awful surprised. He told me to watch out sharp and let him know when the men come in sight again. Said they was up to some devilment or other. Couldn't be gone long. I wished I was out of that tree, but I dasn't come down. Buck begun to cry and rip, and loud that him and his cousin Joe, that was the other young chap, would make up for this day yet. He said his father and his two brothers was killed, and two or three of the enemy. Said the Shepherdsons laid for them in ambush. Buck said his father and brothers ought to have waited for their relations. The Shepherdsons was too strong for them. I asked him what was become of young Harney and Miss Sophia. He said they got across the river and was safe. I was glad of that but the way Buck did take on, because he didn't manage to kill Harney that day he shot at him, I ain't ever heard anything like it. All of a sudden, bang, 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 goes three or four guns. The men had slipped around through the woods and come in from behind without their horses. The boys jumped for the river, both of them hurt, and as they swum down the current the men run along the bank, shooting at them and singing out, Kill them, kill them! made me so sick I most fell out of the tree. I ain't a going to tell all that happened. It would make me sick again if I was to do that. I wished I hadn't ever come ashore that night to see such things. I ain't ever going to get shut of them. Lots of times I dream about them. I stayed in the tree till it begun to get dark, afraid to come down. Sometimes I heard guns away off in the woods and twice I seen little gangs of men gallop past the log store with guns, so I reckon the trouble was still a-goin' on. I was mighty downhearted, so I made up my mind I wouldn't ever go a-near that house again, because I reckon I was to blame somehow. I judged that that piece of paper meant that Miss Sophia was to meet Harness somewheres at half-past two and run off, and I judged I ought to told her father about that paper and the curious way she acted, and then maybe he would have locked her up, and this awful mess wouldn't ever happened. When I got down out of the tree I crept along down the river bank a piece, and found the two bodies laying in the edge of the water, and tugged at them till I got them ashore. Then I covered up their faces and got away as quick as I could. I cried a little when I was covering up Buck's face for he was mighty good to me. It was just dark now. I never went near the house, but struck through the woods and made for the swamp. Jim weren't on his allen, so I tramped off in a hurry for the crick, 
and crowded through the willows, red-hot to jump aboard and get out of that awful country. The raft was gone. My souls, but I was scared. I couldn't get my breath for most a minute. Then I raised a yell. A voice not twenty-five foot from me says, "'Good land, that you, honey? Don't make no noise.' It was Jim's voice. Nothing ever sounded so good before. I run along the bank a piece and got aboard, and Jim he grabbed me and hugged me. He was so glad to see me. He says, "'Laws bless you, child. I was right down show you's dead again. Jack's been here. He say he reckon you's been shot, cause you didn't come home no more. And I's just this minute a startin' to raft down towards the mouth of the creek. So as be all ready for to shove out and leave soon as Jack comes again and tells me for certain you is dead. Lawsy, I's mighty glad to get you back again, honey. I says, All right, that's mighty good. They won't find me, and they'll think I've been killed and floated down the river. There's something up there that'll help them think so. So don't you lose no time, Jim, but just shove off for the big water as fast as ever you can. I never felt easy till the raft was two mile below there and out in the middle of the Mississippi. Then we hung up our signal lantern and judged that we was free and safe once more. I hadn't had a bite to eat since yesterday, so Jim he got out some corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbage and greens. There ain't nothing in the world so good when it's cooked right. And whilst I eat my supper we talked and had a good time. I was powerful glad to get away from the feuds, and so was Jim to get away from the swamp. We said there warn't no home like a raft, after all. Other places do seem so cramped up and smothery, but a raft don't. You feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Chapter 19. Two or three days and nights went by. I reckon I might say they swum by, they slid along so quiet and smooth and lovely. Here's the way we put in the time. It was a monstrous big river down there, sometimes a mile and a half wide. We run nights and laid up and hid daytimes. Soon as night was most gone we stopped navigating and tied up, nearly always in the dead water under a towhead and then cut young cottonwoods and willows and hid the raft with them. Then we set out the lines. Next we slid into the river and had a swim so as to freshen up and cool off. Then we sat down on the sandy bottom where the water was about knee-deep and watched the daylight come. Not a sound anywheres. Perfectly still. Just like the whole world was asleep. Only sometimes the bullfrog a-cluttering, maybe. The first thing to see, looking away over the water, was a kind of dull line. That was the woods on the other side. You couldn't make nothing else out. 
then a pale place in the sky, then more paleness spreading around. Then the river softened up away off. It weren't black any more, but gray. You could see little dark spots drifting along ever so far away, trading scows and such things, and long black streaks, rafts. Sometimes you could hear a sweep squeaking, or jumbled up voices. It was so still, and sounds come so far. And by and by you could see a streak on the water which you know by the look of the streak that there's a snag there in the swift current which breaks on it and makes that streak look that way. And you see the mist curl up off of the water, and the east reddens up, and the river, and you make out a log cabin in the edge of the woods, away on the bank on the other side of the river, being a wood-yard likely, and piled by them cheats so you can throw a dog through it anywheres. Then the nice breeze springs up and comes fanning you from over there, so cool and fresh and sweet to smell on account of the woods and the flowers. But sometimes not that way, because they've left dead fish laying around, gars and such, and they do get pretty rank. And next you got the full day, and everything's smiling in the sun, and the songbirds just going it. A little smoke couldn't be noticed now, so we would take some fish off of the lines and cook up a hot breakfast. And afterwards we would watch the lonesomeness of the river, and kind of lazy along, and by and by lazy off to sleep. Wake up by and by, and look to see what done it, and maybe see a steamboat coughing along upstream, so far off towards the other side you couldn't tell nothing about her only whether she was a stern-wheel or a side-wheel. Then for about an hour there wouldn't be nothing to hear nor nothing to see, just solid lonesomeness. Next you'd see a raft sliding by, away off yonder, and maybe a galoot on it chopping, because they're most always doing it on a raft. You'd see the axe flash and come down. You don't hear nothing. You see that axe go up again, and by the time it's above the man's head, then you hear the kajunk. It had took all that time to come over the water. So we would put in the day, lazying around, listening to the stillness. Once there was a thick fog, and the rafts and things that went by was beating tin pans so the steamboats wouldn't run over them. A scow or a raft went by so close we could hear them talking and cussing and laughing heard them plain, but we couldn't see no sign of them. It made you feel you know, crawly. It was like spirits carrying on that way in the air. Jim said he believed it was spirits, but I says, no, spirits wouldn't say, dern the dern fog. Soon as it was night out, we shoved. When we got her out to about the middle, we let her alone, and let her float wherever the current wanted her to. Then we lit the pipes, and dangled our legs in the water, and talked about all kinds of things. We was always naked, day and night, whenever the mosquitoes would let us. The new clothes Buck's folks made for me was too good to be comfortable, and besides I didn't go much on clothes nohow. Sometimes we'd have that whole river all to ourselves for the longest time. Yonder was the banks and the islands, across the water and maybe a spark, 
which was a candle in a cabin window. And sometimes on the water you could see a spark or two, on a raft or a scow, you know. And maybe you could hear a fiddle or a song coming over from one of them crafts. It's lovely to live on a raft. We had the sky up there, all speckled with stars, and we used to lay on our backs and look up at them, and discuss about whether they were made or only just happened. Jim, he allowed they was made, but I allowed they happened. I judged it would have took too long to make so many. Jim said the moon could have laid them. Well, that looked kind of reasonable, so I didn't say nothing against it, because I've seen a frog lay most as many. So, of course, it could be done. We used to watch the stars that fell, too, and see them streak down. Jim allowed they'd got spoiled and was hove out of the nest. Once or twice of a night we would see a steamboat slipping along in the dark, and now and then she would belch a whole world of sparks up out of her chimbleys, and they would rain down in the river and look awful pretty. Then she would turn a corner and her lights would wink out, and her pow-wow shut off and leave the river still again. And by and by her waves would get to us, a long time after she was gone, and joggle the raft a bit. And after that you wouldn't hear nothing, for you couldn't tell how long except maybe frogs or something. After midnight the people on shore went to bed, and then for two or three hours the shores was black, no more sparks in the cabin windows. These sparks was our clock. The first one that showed again meant morning was coming, so we hunted a place to hide and tie up right away. One morning about daybreak I found a canoe and crossed over a chute to the main shore. It was only two hundred yards, and paddled about a mile up a creek amongst the cypress woods, to see if I couldn't get some berries. Just as I was passing a place where a kind of a cow-path crossed the creek, here comes a couple of men tearing up the path as tight as they could foot it. I thought I was a goner, for whenever anybody was after anybody I judged it was me, or maybe Jim. I was about to dig out from there in a hurry, but they was pretty close to me then, and sung out and begged me to save their lives, said they hadn't been doing nothing, and was being chased for it, said there was men and dogs a-coming. They wanted to jump right in, but I says, "'Don't you do it. I don't hear the dogs and horses yet. You've got time to crowd through the brush and get up the creek a little ways. Then you take to the water and wade down to me and get in.' That'll throw the dogs off the scent. They done it, and soon as they was aboard I lit out for our towhead. In about five or ten minutes we heard the dogs and the men away off, shouting. We heard them come along towards the creek, but couldn't see them. They seemed to stop and fool around a while. Then, as we got further and further away all the time, we couldn't hardly hear them at all. By the time we had left a mile of woods behind us and struck the river, everything was quiet. We paddled over to the towhead and hid in the cottonwoods, and was safe. One of these fellows was about seventy or upwards, and had a bald head and very gray whiskers. He had an old battered-up slouch hat on, and a greasy blue woolen shirt, and ragged old blue jean breeches stuffed into his boot-tops. 
and home-knit galluses. No, he only had one. He had an old long-tailed blue jeans coat with slick brass buttons flung over his arm, and both of them had big, fat, ratty-looking carpet-bags. The other fellow was about thirty, and dressed about as ornery. After breakfast we all laid off and talked, and the first thing to come out was that these chaps didn't know one another. "'What got you into trouble?' says the bald head to the other chap. "'Well, I'd been selling an article to take the tartar off the teeth, and it does take it off, too, and generally the enamel along with it, but I stayed about one night longer than I ought to, and was just in the act of sliding out when I ran across you on the trail this side of town, and you told me they were coming, and begged me to help you get off. So I told you I was expecting trouble myself, and would scatter out with you. That's the whole yarn. What's yourn? Well, I've been running a little tempered survival there about a week, and was the pet of the women folks, big and little, for I was making it mighty warm for the rummies, I tell you, and taking as much as five or six dollars a night, ten cents a head, children and niggers free, and business a-growing all the time. When somehow or another a little report got around last night that I had a way of putting in my time with a private jug on the sly. A nigger rousted me out this morning, and told me the people was gathering on the quiet with their dogs and horses, and they'd be along pretty soon and give me about half an hour's start, and then run me down if they could. And if they got me, they'd tar and feather me and ride me on a rail, sure. I didn't wait for no breakfast. I weren't hungry. "'Old man,' said the young one, "'I reckon we might double-team it together. What do you think?' "'I ain't undisposed. What's your line, mainly?' "'Chewer pritter by trade. Do a little in patent medicines. Theatre actor. Tragedy, you know. Take a turn to mesmerism and phrenology when there's chance. Teach singing geography school for a change. Sling a lecturer sometimes. Oh, I do lots of things. Most anything that comes handy, so it ain't work. What's your lay? I've done considerable in the doctrine way in my time. Laying on a hands is my best holt for cancer and paralysis and such things, and I can tell a fortune pretty good when I've got somebody along to find out the facts for me. Preaching's my line, too, and working camp meetings, and missionarying around. Nobody never said anything for a while. Then the young man hove a sigh, and says, Alas! What are you alassin' about? says the bald head. To think I should have lived to be leading such a life, and be degraded down into such company. Had he begun to wipe the corner of his eye with a rag? Dern your skin, ain't the company good enough for you? Says the bald head, pretty pert and uppish. Yes, it is good enough for me. It's as good as I deserve. Or who fetched me so low when I was so high? I did myself. I don't blame you, gentlemen. Far from it. I don't blame anybody. I deserve it all. Let the cold world do its worst. One thing I know. There's a grave somewhere for me. The world may go on just as it's always done, and take everything from me. Loved ones, property, everything. But it can't take that. Some day I'll lie down in it and forget it all, 
and my poor broken heart will be at rest. He went on a-wipin'. "'Drot your poor broken heart,' says the bald head. "'What are you heavin' your poor broken heart at us for? We hain't done nothin'.' "'No, I know you haven't. I ain't blamin' you, gentlemen. I brought myself down. Yes, I did it myself. It's right I should suffer. Perfectly right. I don't make any moan. Brought you down from where? Where was you brought down from? Ah, you would not believe me. The world never believes. Let it pass. Tis no matter. The secret of my birth— The secret of your birth? Do you mean to say? Gentlemen, says the young man, very solemn, I will reveal it to you, for I feel I may have confidence in you. By rights, I am a duke. Jim's eyes bugged out when he heard that, and I reckon mine did, too. Then the bald head says, No, you can't mean it. Yes, my great-grandfather, eldest son of the Duke of Bridgewater, fled to this country about the end of the last century, to breathe the pure air of freedom, married here, and died, leaving a son, his own father dying about the same time. The second son of the late duke seized the titles and estates. The infant real duke was ignored. I am the lineal descendant of that infant. I am the rightful duke of Bridgewater. And here I am, forlorn, torn from my high estate, hunted of men, despised by the cold world, ragged, worn, heartbroken, and degraded to the companionship of felons on a raft. Jim pitied him ever so much, and so did I. We tried to comfort him, but he said it warn't much use. He couldn't be much comforted, said if we was a mind to acknowledge him, that would do him more good than most anything else. So he said we would, if he would tell us how. He said we ought to bow when we spoke to him, and say, Your Grace, or My Lord, or Your Lordship and he wouldn't mind it if we called him plain Bridgewater, which he said was a title anyway and not a name, and one of us ought to wait on him at dinner and do any little thing for him he wanted done. Well, that was all easy, so we done it. All through dinner Jim stood around and waited on him and says, We your grace have some of this or some of that, and so on, and a body could see it was mighty pleasing to him. But the old man got pretty silent by and by, didn't have much to say, and didn't look pretty comfortable over all that padding that was going on around that duke. He seemed to have something on his mind. So along in the afternoon he says, "'Looky here, Bridgewater,' he says, "'I'm nation sorry for you, but you ain't the only person that's had troubles like that.' "'No? No, you ain't.' You ain't the only person that's been snaked down wrongfully out of a high place. Alas! No, you ain't the only person that's had a secret of his birth. And by jings, he begins to cry. Hold! What do you mean? Bilgewater, can I trust you? Says the old man, still sort of sobbing. To the bitter death! He took the old man by the hand and squeezed it, and says, that secret of your being. Speak! Bilgewater, 
I am the late dolphin. You bet you, Jim and me stared this time. Then the Duke says, You are what? Yes, my friend, it is too true. Your eyes is looking at this very moment at the poor, disappeared dolphin, Louis the Seventeen, son of Louis the Sixteen and Mary Antoinette. You, at your age? No. You mean you're the late Charlemagne? You must be six or seven hundred years old at the very least. Trouble has done it, Bilgewater. Trouble has done it. Trouble has brung these gray hairs and this premature balditude. Yes, gentlemen, you see before you, in blue jeans and misery, the wandering, exiled, trampled on and suffering, rightful King of France. Well, he cried and took on so that me and Jim didn't know hardly what to do. We was so sorry, and so glad and proud we got him with us, too. So we sat in, like we'd done before with the Duke, and tried to comfort him. But he said it warn't no use. Nothing but to be dead and done with it all could do him any good. Though he said it often made him feel easier and better for a while if people treated him according to his rights, and got down on one knee to speak to him, and always called him Your Majesty, and waited on him first at meals, and didn't set down in his presence till he asked them. So Jim and me set to majestying him, and doing this and that and the other for him, and standing up till he told us we might set down. This done him heaps of good, and so he got cheerful and comfortable. But the Duke kind of soured on him, and didn't look a bit satisfied with the way things was going. Still, the King acted real friendly towards him, and said the Duke's great-grandfather and all the other Dukes of Bilgewater was a good deal thought of by his father, and was allowed to come to the palace considerable. But the Duke stayed huffy a good while, till by and by the King says, "'Like as not we got to be together a blame long time on this here raft, Bilgewater, and so what's the use of your being sour? It'll only make things uncomfortable. It ain't my fault I weren't born a Duke.' It ain't your fault you weren't born a king, so what's the use to worry? Make the best of things the way you find em, says I. That's my motto. This ain't no bad thing we struck here. Plenty grub and an easy life. Come, give us your hand, Duke, and let's all be friends. The Duke done it, and Jim and me was pretty glad to see it. It took away all the uncomfortableness, and we felt mighty good over it because it would have been a miserable business to have any unfriendliness on the raft, for what you want above all things on a raft is for everybody to be satisfied and feel right and kind towards the others. It didn't take me long to make up my mind that these liars weren't no kings nor dukes at all, but just low-down humbugs and frauds. But I never said nothing, never let on, kept it to myself it's the best way. Then you don't have no quarrels, and don't get into no trouble. If they wanted us to call them kings and dukes, I had no objections, long as it would keep peace in the family, and it weren't no use to tell Jim, so I didn't tell him. If I never learned anything else out of Pap, I learnt that the best way to get along with his kind of people is to let them have their own way. End of chapter
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Chapter 20. They asked us considerable many questions, wanted to know what we covered up the raft that way for, and laid by in the daytime instead of running. Was Jim a runaway nigger? Says I. Goodness sakes, would a runaway nigger run south? No, they allowed he wouldn't. I had to account for things some way, so I says, My folks was living in Pike County in Missouri, where I was born and they all died off but me and Pa and my brother Ike. Pa, he lowed he'd break up and go down and live with Uncle Ben, who's got a little one-horse place on the river, forty-four miles below Orleans. Pa was pretty poor, and had some debts, so when he'd squared up there warn't nothing left but sixteen dollars and our nigger Jim. That warn't enough to take us fourteen hundred mile deck passage nor no other way. Well, when the river rose, Pa had a streak of luck one day. He catched this piece of a raft, so we reckoned we'd go down to Orleans on it. Pa's luck didn't hold out. A steamboat run over the forward quarter of the raft one night, and we all went overboard and dove under the wheel. Jim and me come up all right, but Pa was drunk, and Ike was only four years old, so they never come up no more. Well. For the next day or two we had considerable trouble, because people was always coming out in skiffs and trying to take Jim away from me, saying they believed he was a runaway nigger. We don't run daytimes no more now. Nights, they don't bother us. The Duke says, Leave me alone to cipher out a way so we can run in the daytime if we want to. I'll think the thing over. I'll invent a plan that'll fix it. We'll let it alone for today, because of course we don't want to go by that town yonder in daylight. It mightn't be healthy. Towards night it begun to darken up and look like rain. The heat lightning was squirting around low down in the sky, and the leaves was beginning to shiver. It was going to be pretty ugly. It was easy to see that. So the Duke and the King went to overhauling our wigwam to see what the beds was like. My bed was a straw tick better than Jim's, which was a corn-shuck tick, and there are always cobs around about in a shuck tick, and they poke into you and hurt, and when you roll over the dry shucks sound like you was rolling over in a pile of dead leaves. It makes such a rustling that you wake up. Well, the Duke allowed he would take my bed, but the King allowed he wouldn't. He says, I should have reckoned the difference in rank would have suggested to you that a corn-shuck bed wa'n't just fitting for me to sleep on. Your grace'll take the shuck bed yourself. Jim and me was in a sweat again for a minute, being afraid there was going to be some more trouble amongst them. So we was pretty glad when the Duke says, "'Tis my fate to be always ground into the mire under the iron heel of oppression." Misfortune has broken my once haughty spirit. I yield, I submit. Tis my fate. I am alone in the world. Let me suffer. Can bear it. We got away as soon as it was good and dark. 
The king told us to stand well out towards the middle of the river, and not show a light till we got a long ways below the town. We come in sight of the little bunch of lights by and by, that was the town, you know, and slid by about a half a mile out all right. When we was three-quarters of a mile below we hoisted up our signal lantern, and about ten o'clock it came on to rain and blow and thunder and lightning like everything. So the king told us to both stay on watch till the weather got better. Then him and the duke crawled into the wigwam and turned in for the night. It was my watch below till twelve, but I wouldn't have turned in anyway if I'd had a bed, because a body don't see such a storm as that every day in the week, not by a long sight. My souls, how the wind did scream along! Every second or two there come a glare that lit up the white caps for a half a mile around, and you'd see the islands looking dusty through the rain, and the trees thrashing around in the wind. Then comes a whack! Bum, 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 and the thunder would go rumbling and grumbling away, and quit, and then rip comes another flash and another sock of the lodger. The waves most washed me off the raft sometimes, but I hadn't any clothes on and didn't mind. We didn't have no trouble about snags. The lightning was glaring and flittering around so constant that we could see them plenty soon enough to throw her head this way or that and miss them. I had the middle watch, you know, but I was pretty sleepy by that time, so Jim he said he could stand the first half of it for me. He was always mighty good that way, Jim was. I crawled into the wigwam, but the king and the duke had their legs sprawled around so there weren't no show for me, so I laid outside. I didn't mind the rain, because it was warm, and the waves weren't running so high now. About two they come up again, though, and Jim was going to call me, but he changed his mind because he reckoned they weren't high enough yet to do any harm. But he was mistaken about that, for pretty soon, all of a sudden, along comes a regular ripper and wash me overboard. It most killed Jim a-laughing. He was the easiest nigger to laugh that ever was, anyway. I took the watch, and Jim he laid down and snored away and by and by the storm let up for good and all, and the first cabin light that showed I roused him out, and we slid the raft into hiding quarters for the day. The king got out an old ratty deck of cards after breakfast, and him and the duke played seven up a while, five cents a game. Then they got tired of it and allowed they would lay out a campaign, as they called it. The duke went down into his carpet-bag and fetched up a lot of little printed bills and read them aloud. One bill said, The celebrated Dr. Armand de Montauban of Paris would lecture on the science of phrenology at such and such a place on the blank day of blank at ten cents admission and furnish charts of character at twenty-five cents apiece. The Duke said that was him. In another bill he was the world-renowned Shakespearean tragedian, Garrick the Younger, of Drury Lane, London. In other bills he had a lot of other names and done other wonderful things, like finding water and gold with a divining rod, dissipating witch spells, and so on. By and by, he says, But the histrionic muse is the darling. 
Have you ever trod the boards, royalty? No, says the king. You shall, then, before you're three days older, fallen grandeur, says the duke. The first good town we come to will hire a hall and do the sword-fight in Richard the Third, and the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet. How does that strike you? I'm in up to the hub for anything that will pay, Bilgewater, but you see I don't know nothing about play-acting, and hain't ever seen much of it. I was too small when Pap used to have em at the palace. Do you reckon you can learn me? Easy. All right. I'm just a-freezin' for something fresh, anyway. Let's commence right away." So the Duke he told him all about who Romeo was and who Juliet was, and said he was used to being Romeo, so the King could be Juliet. "'But if Juliet's such a young gal, Duke, my peeled head and my white whiskers is going to look uncommon odd on her, maybe.' "'No, don't you worry. These country jakes won't ever think of that.' Besides, you know, you'll be in costume, and that makes all the difference in the world. Juliet's in a balcony, enjoying the moonlight before she goes to bed, and she's got on her nightgown and a ruffled nightcap. Here are the costumes for the parts. He got out two or three curtain calico suits, which he said was medieval armor for Richard the Third, and the other chap and a long white cotton nightshirt and a ruffled nightcap to match. The king was satisfied, so the duke got out his book and read the parts over in the most splendid spread-eagle way, prancing around and acting at the same time, to show how it had got to be done. Then he gave the book to the king and told him to get his part by heart. There was a little one-horse town about three miles down the bend and after dinner the duke said he had ciphered out his idea about how to run in daylight without it being dangersome for Jim. So he allowed he would go down to the town and fix that thing. The king allowed he would go, too, and see if he couldn't strike something. We was out of coffee, so Jim said I'd better go along with them in the canoe and get some. When we got there, there wa'n't nobody stirring, streets empty, and perfectly dead and still like Sunday. We found a sick nigger sunning himself in the back yard, and he said everybody that wa'n't too young or too sick or too old was gone to camp meeting about two mile back in the woods. The king got the directions and allowed he'd go and work that camp meeting for all it was worth, and I might go too. The duke said that what he was after was a printing office. We found it a little bit of a concern up over a carpenter shop, carpenters and printers all gone to the meeting, and no doors locked. It was a dirty, littered-up place, and had ink marks and handbills with pictures of horses and runaway niggers on them, all over the walls. The Duke shed his coat and said he was all right now. So me and the King lit out for the camp meeting. We got there in about a half an hour fairly dripping, for it was a most awful hot day. There was as much as a thousand people there from twenty mile around. The woods was full of teams and wagons, hitched everywheres, feeding out of the wagon troughs and stomping to keep off the flies. There were sheds made out of poles and roofed over with branches, where they had lemonade and gingerbread to sell, and piles of watermelons and green corn and such like truck. 
The preaching was going on under the same kind of sheds, only they was bigger and held crowds of people. The benches was made out of outside slabs of logs with holes bored in the round side to drive sticks into for legs. They didn't have no backs. The preachers had high platforms to stand on at one end of the sheds. The women had on sunbonnets, and some had linsey-woolsey frocks, some gingham ones, and a few of the young ones had on calico. Some of the young men were barefooted, and some of the children didn't have any clothes on but just a toe-linen shirt. Some of the old women was knitting, and some of the young folks was courting on the sly. The first shed we come to the preacher was lining out of him. He lined out two lines, everybody sung it, and it was kind of grand to hear it. There was so many of them, and they done it in such a rousing way. Then he lined out two more for them to sing, and so on. The people woke up more and more, and sung louder and louder, and towards the end some begun to groan, and some begun to shout. Then the preacher begun to preach, and begun in earnest, too, and went weaving first to one side of the platform, and then the other, and then a-leaning down over the front of it, with his arms and his body going all the time, and shouting his words out with all his might. And every now and then he would hold up his Bible and spread it open, and kind of pass it around this way and that, shouting, "'It's the brazen serpent in the wilderness! Look upon it and live!' And people would shout out, "'Glory! Amen!' And so he went on, and the people groaning and crying and saying amen. Oh, come to the mourner's bench, come black with sin, amen, come sick and sore, amen, come lame and halt and blind, amen, come poor and needy, sunk in shame, amen, come all that's worn and soiled and suffering, come with a broken spirit, come with a contrite heart, come in your rags and sin and dirt. The waters that cleanse is free, the door of heaven stands open. Oh, enter in, and be at rest. Amen. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And so on. You couldn't make out what the preacher said any more, on account of the shouting and crying. Folks got up everywheres in the crowd, and worked their way just by main strength to the mourner's bench, with the tears running down their faces. And when all the mourners had got up there to the front benches in a crowd, they sung and shouted and flung themselves down on the straw just crazy and wild. Well, the first I knowed the king got a-goin', and you could hear him over everybody. And next he went a-chargin' up on to the platform, and the preacher he begged him to speak to the people. And he done it. He told them he was a pirate. Been a pirate for thirty years out in the Indian Ocean, and his crew was thinned out considerable last spring in a fight, and he was home now to take out some fresh men. And thanks to goodness he'd been robbed last night and put ashore off of a steamboat without a cent, and he was glad of it. It was the blessedest thing that ever happened to him, because he was a changed man now, and happy for the first time in his life, and poor as he was, he was going to start right off and work his way back to the Indian Ocean and put in the rest of his life trying to turn the pirates into the true path, 
for he could do it better than anybody else, being acquainted with all pirate crews in that ocean, and though it would take him a long time to get there without money, he would get there anyway, and every time he convinced a pirate he would say to him, "'Don't you thank me, don't you give me no credit. It all belongs to them dear people in Pokeville camp-meeting, natural brothers and benefactors of the race, and that dear preacher there, the truest friend a pirate ever had.' Then he bursted into tears, and so did everybody. Then somebody sings out, "'Take up a collection for him! Take up a collection!' Well, a half a dozen made a jump to do it, but somebody sings out, "'Let him pass the hat around!' Then everybody said it, the preacher too. So the king went all through the crowd with his hat, swabbing his eyes, and blessing the people, and praising them, and thanking them for being so good to the poor pirates away off there and every little while the prettiest kind of girls, with the tears running down their cheeks, would up and ask him would he let them kiss him for to remember him by, and he always done it, and some of them he hugged and kissed as many as five or six times, and he was invited to stay a week, and everybody wanted him to live in their houses, and said they'd think it was an honor, but he said, as this was the last day of the camp meeting he couldn't do no good, and besides, he was in a sweat to get to the Indian Ocean right off and go to work on the pirates. When we got back to the raft and he come to count up, he found he had collected eighty-seven dollars and seventy-five cents. And then he had fetched away a three-gallon jug of whiskey, too, that he found under a wagon when he was starting home through the woods. The king said, take it all around it laid over any day he'd ever put in in the missionarying line. He said it warn't no use talking. Heathens don't amount to shucks alongside of pirates to work a camp meeting with. The Duke was thinking he'd been doing pretty well till the King come to show up, but after that he didn't think so so much. He had set up and printed off two little jobs for farmers in that printing office, horse bills, and took the money, four dollars and he had got in ten dollars' worth of advertisements for the paper, which he said he would put in for four dollars if they would pay in advance. So they done it. The price of the paper was two dollars a year, but he took in three subscriptions for half a dollar apiece on condition of them paying him in advance. They was going to pay in cordwood and onions as usual, but he said he had just bought the concern and knocked down the price as low as he could afford it and was going to run it for cash. He set up a little piece of poetry, which he made himself, out of his own head, three verses, kind of sweet and saddish. The name of it was, Yes, Crush, Cold World, This Breaking Heart. And he left that all set up and ready to print in the paper, and didn't charge nothing for it. Well, he took in nine dollars and a half, and said he'd done a pretty square day's work for it. Then he showed us another little job he printed and hadn't charged for, because it was for us. It had a picture of a runaway nigger with a bundle on a stick over his shoulder, and two hundred dollar reward under it. The reading was all about Jim, and just described him to a dot. It said he run away from St. Jack's Plantation, forty mile below New Orleans, last winter, and likely went north 
and whoever would catch him and send him back he could have the reward and expenses. Now, says the Duke, after tonight we can run in the daytime if we want to. Whenever we see anybody coming we can tie Jim hand and foot with a rope, and lay him in the wigwam and show this handbill and say we captured him up the river, and were too poor to travel on a steamboat, so we got this little raft on credit from our friends and are going down to get the reward. Handcuffs and chains would look still better on Jim, but it wouldn't go well with a story of us being so poor. Too much like jewelry. Ropes are the correct thing. We must preserve the unities, as we say on the boards. We all said the Duke was pretty smart, and there couldn't be no trouble about running daytimes. We judged we could make miles enough the night to get out of the reach of the powwow we reckoned the Duke's work in the printing office was going to make in that little town. Then we could boom right along if we wanted to. We laid low and kept still, and never shoved out till nearly ten o'clock. Then we slid by, pretty wide away from the town, and didn't hoist our lantern till we was clear out of sight of it. When Jim called me to take the watch at four in the morning, he says, Huck, does you reckon we're going to run across any more kings on this trip? No, I says, I reckon not. Well, says he, that's all right, then. I don't mind one or two kings, but that's enough. This one's powerful drunk, and the Duke ain't much better. I found Jim had been trying to get him to talk French, so he could hear what it was like, but he said he had been in this country so long and had so much trouble he'd forgot it. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Chapter 21 It was after sun-up now, but we went right on and didn't tie up. The King and the Duke turned out by and by, looking pretty rusty. But after they jumped overboard and took a swim, it chippered them up a good deal. After breakfast the king he took a seat on the corner of the raft, and pulled off his boots and rolled up his breeches, and let his legs dangle in the water, so as to be comfortable, and lit his pipe and went to getting his Romeo and Juliet by heart. When he had got it pretty good, him and the duke begun to practice it together. The duke had to learn him over and over again how to say every speech, and he made him sigh, and put his hand on his heart, and after a while he said he'd done it pretty well. Only, he says, you mustn't bellow out Romeo that way, like a bull. You must say it soft and sweet and languishy. So, Romeo, that is the idea, for Juliet's a dear sweet mere child of a girl, you know, and she doesn't bray like a jackass. Well, next they got out a couple of long swords that the Duke made out of oak laths, and begun to practice the sword-fight. The Duke called himself Richard the Third, and the way they laid on and pranced around the raft was grand to see. But by and by the King tripped and fell overboard, and after that they took a rest, 
and had a talk about all kinds of adventures they'd had in other times along the river. After dinner the Duke says, "'Well, Capet, we'll want to make this a first-class show, you know, so I guess we'll add a little more to it. We want a little something to answer encores with, anyway.' "'What's encores, Bilgewater?' The Duke told him, and then says, "'I'll answer by doing the Highland Fling, or the Sailor's Hornpipe, and you—well, let me see. Oh, I've got it. You could do Hamlet's soliloquy.' Hamlet's which? Hamlet's soliloquy, you know, the most celebrated thing in Shakespeare. Ah, it's sublime, sublime, always fetches the house. I haven't got it in the book. I've only got one volume. But I reckon I can piece it out from memory. I'll just walk up and down a minute and see if I can call it back from Recollections Vaults. So he went to marching up and down, thinking, and frowning horrible every now and then. Then he would hoist up his eyebrows. Next he would squeeze his hand on his forehead and stagger back and kind of moan. Next he would sigh, and next he'd let on to drop a tear. It was beautiful to see him. By and by he got it. He told us to give attention. Then he strikes a most noble attitude, with one leg shoved forwards and his arms stretched away up, and his head tilted back, looking up at the sky and then he begins to rip and rave and grit his teeth. And after that, all through his speech, he howled and spread around and swelled up his chest, and just knocked the spots out of any acting ever I see before. This is the speech. I learned it easy enough while he was learning it to the king. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin. That makes calamity of so long life. For who would fartles bear? till Burnham Wood do come to Dunsinane, but that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep, great nature's second course, and makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others that we know not of. There's the respect must give us pause. Wake, Duncan, with thy knocking. I would thou couldst. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, and proud man's contumely, the law's delay, and the quietus which his pangs might take, in the dead waste and middle of the night, when churchyards yawn, in customary suits of solemn black, but that the undiscovered country from whose bourn no traveller returns, breathes forth contagion on the world, and thus the native hue of resolution, like the poor cat in the adage, is sicklied over with care and all the clouds that lowered o'er our housetops, with this regard their currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. But soft you, the fair Ophelia, ope not thy ponderous and marble jaws, but get thee to a nunnery. Go! Well, the old man he liked that speech, and he mighty soon got it so he could do it first-rate. It seemed like he was just born for it, and when he had his hand in and was excited, it was perfectly lovely the way he would rip and tear and rear up behind when he was getting it off. The first chance we got, the Duke he had some showbills printed, and after that, for two or three days as we floated along, the raft was a most uncommon lively place, for there weren't nothing but sword-fighting and rehearsing, as the Duke called it, 
going on all the time. One morning, when we were pretty well down the state of Arkansas, we came in sight of a little one-horse town in a big bend, so we tied up about three-quarters of a mile above it, in the mouth of a creek which was shut in like a tunnel by the cypress trees, and all of us but Jim took the canoe and went down there to see if there was any chance in that place for our show. We struck it mighty lucky. There was going to be a circus there that afternoon, and the country people was already beginning to come in, in all kinds of old shackly wagons and on horses. The circus would leave before night, so our show would have a pretty good chance. The Duke he hired the courthouse, and we went around and stuck up our bills. They read like this. Shakespearean Revival. Wonderful attraction. For one night only. The world-renowned tragedians David Garrick the Younger, of Drury Lane Theatre, London, and Edmund Kane the Elder, of the Royal Haymarket Theatre, Whitechapel, Pudding Lane, Piccadilly, London, and the Royal Continental Theatres in their sublime Shakespearean spectacle entitled The Balcony Scene in Romeo and Juliet. Romeo, played by Mr. Garrick. Juliet, played by Mr. Kane. Assisted by the whole strength of the company, new costumes, new scenes, new appointments. Also, the thrilling, masterly, and blood-curdling broadsword conflict in Richard III. Richard III, played by Mr. Garrett. Richmond, played by Mr. Kane. Also, by special request, Hamlet's immortal soliloquy, by the illustrious Kane, done by him three hundred consecutive nights in Paris, for one night only, on account of imperative European engagements. Admission twenty-five cents. Children and servants, ten cents. Then we went loafing around town. The stores and houses was most all old, shackly, dried-up frame concerns that hadn't ever been painted. They was set up three or four feet above ground on stilts, so as to be out of reach of the water when the river was overflowed. The houses had little gardens around them, but they didn't seem to raise hardly anything in them but jimson weeds, and sunflowers, and ash piles, and old curled-up boots and shoes, and pieces of bottles and rags, and played-out tinware. The fences was made of different kinds of boards, nailed on at different times, and they leaned every which way, and had gates that didn't generally have but one hinge, a leather one. Some of the fences had been whitewashed some time or another, but the Duke said it was in Columbus's time, like enough. There was generally hogs in the garden and people driving them out. All the stores was along one street. They had white domestic awnings in front, and the country people hitched their horses to the awning posts. There was empty dry-goods boxes under the awnings, and loafers roosting on them all day long whittling them with their barlow knives, and chawing tobacco, and gaping, and yawning, and stretching, mighty ornery lot. They generally had on yellow straw hats, most as wide as an umbrella, but didn't wear no coats nor waistcoats. They called one another Bill, and Buck, and Hank, and Joe, and Andy, and talked lazy and drawly, and used considerable many cuss-words. There was as many as one loafer leaning up against every awning post, and he most always had his hands in his breeches pockets, except when he fetched them out to lend a chaw of tobacco, or scratch. 
what a body was hearin' amongst them all the time was, "'Give me a chaw of tobacco, Hank. I can't. I ain't got but one chaw left. Ask Bill.' "'Maybe Bill, he gives him a chaw. Maybe he lies and says he ain't got none. Some of them kinds of loafers never has a cent in the world, nor a chaw of tobacco of their own. They get all their chawin' by borrowin'. They say to a fella, I wish you'd lend me a chaw, Jack. I just this minute give Ben Thompson the last chaw I had. Which is a lie pretty much every time. He don't fool nobody but a stranger. But Jack ain't no stranger, so he says, You give him a chaw, did you? So did your sister's cat's grandmother. You pay me back the chaws you already borrowed off of me, Leif Buckner. Then I'll loan you one or two ton of it, and won't charge you no back interest, nother. Well, I did pay back some of it once. Yes, you did, about six chaws. You'd borrow a store tobacco and pay back niggerhead. Store tobacco is flat black plug, but these fellows mostly chaws the natural leaf twisted. When they borrow a chaw, they don't generally cut it off with a knife, but set the plug in between their teeth and gnaw with their teeth and tug at the plug with their hands till they get it in two. Then sometimes the one that owns the tobacco looks mournful at it when it's handed back and says, sarcastic, "'Here, give me the chaw. You take the plug.' All the streets and lanes was just mud. They want nothing else but mud. Mud as black as tar and nigh about a foot deep in some places, and two or three inches deep in all the places. The hogs loafed and grunted round everywheres. You'd see a muddy sow and a litter of pigs come lazing along the street and wallop herself right down in the way where folks had to walk around her, and she'd stretch out and shut her eyes and wave her ears whilst the pigs was milking her and look as happy as if she was on salary. And pretty soon you'd hear a loafer sing out, Hi! So, boy, sick him tyke! And away the sow would go, squealing most horrible, with a dog or two swinging to each ear, and three or four dozen more coming. And then you'd see all the loafers get up and watch the thing out of sight, and laugh at the fun and look grateful for the noise. Then they'd settle back again until there was a dog-fight. They couldn't anything wake them up all over, and make them happy all over, like a dog-fight, unless it might be putting turpentine on a stray dog and setting fire to him, or tying a tin-pan to his tail and see him run himself to death. On the river front some of the houses was sticking out over the bank, and they was bowed and bent, and about ready to tumble in. The people had moved out of them. The bank was caved away under one corner of some others, and that corner was hanging over. People lived in them yet, but it was dangersome, because sometimes a strip of land as wide as a house caves in at a time. Sometimes a belt of land a quarter of a mile deep will start in and cave along and cave along till it all caves into the river in one summer. Such a town as that has to be always moving back and back and back because the river's always gnawing at it. The nearer it got to noon that day, the thicker and thicker was the wagons and horses in the streets, and more coming all the time. Families fetched their dinners with them from the country, and eat them in the wagons. There was considerable whiskey drinking going on, and I seen three fights. 
By and by somebody sings out, "'Here comes old Boggs, in from the country for his little old monthly drunk. Here he comes, boys!' All the loafers looked glad. I reckon they was used to having fun out of Boggs. One of them says, "'Wonder who's a-goin' to chaw up this time. If he'd a-chawed up all the men he's been a-goin' to chaw up in the last twenty year, he'd have a considerable reputation now.' Another one says, I wished old Boggs had threatened me, cause then I'd know I warn't gwine to die for a thousand year. Boggs comes a tearin' along on his horse, whoopin' and yellin' like an engine, and singin' out, Clear the track there, I'm on the wall path, and the path of coffins is a gwine to raise. He was drunk, and weavin' about in his saddle. He was over fifty year old, and had a very red face. Everybody yelled at him, and laughed at him, and sassed him, and he sassed back, and said he'd attend to them, and lay them out in their regular turns. But he couldn't wait now, because he'd come to town to kill old Colonel Sherburn, and his motto was, Meat first, and spoon victuals to top off on. He see me, and rode up and says, Where'd you come from, boy? You prepared to die? Then he rode on. I was scared. But a man says, "'He don't mean nothing. He's always a-carryin' on like that when he's drunk. He's the best-naturedness old fool in Arkansas. Never hurt nobody, drunk nor sober.' Boggs rode up before the biggest store in town, and bent his head down so he could see under the curtain of the awning, and yells, "'Come out here, Sherburn. Come out and meet the man you swindled. You're the hound I'm after, and I'm a-goin' to have you, too.' So he went on, calling Sherburn everything he could lay his tongue to, and whole street packed with people listening and laughing and going on. By and by a proud-looking man about fifty-five, and he was a heap the best-dressed man in that town, too, steps out of the store, and the crowd drops back on each side to let him come. He says to Boggs, mighty calm and slow, he says, "'I'm tired of this.' but I'll endure it till one o'clock. Till one o'clock, mind, no longer. If you open your mouth against me only once after that time, you can't travel so far, but I will find you." Then he turns and goes in. The crowd looked mighty sober. Nobody stirred, and there warn't no more laughing. Boggs rode up Blackguard and Sherburne as loud as he could yell, all down the street. Pretty soon back he comes and stops before the store, still keeping it up. Some men crowded around him and tried to get him to shut up, but he wouldn't. They told him it would be one o'clock in about fifteen minutes, and so he must go home. He must go right away. But it didn't do no good. He cussed away with all his might, and throwed his hat down in the mud and rode over it. And pretty soon away he went a-raging down the street again, with his gray hair a-flying. Everybody that could get a chance at him tried their best to coax him off of his horse, so they could lock him up and get him sober. But it warn't no use. Up the street he would tear again, and give Sherburne another cussin'. By and by somebody says, "'Go for his daughter. Quick, go for his daughter. Sometimes he'll listen to her. If anybody can persuade him, she can.' So somebody started on a run. I walked down street a ways and stopped. In about five or ten minutes here comes Boggs again, but not on his horse. He 
he was a-reelin' across the street towards me, bareheaded, with a friend on both sides of him a hold of his arms and hurrying him along. He was quiet and looked uneasy, and he weren't hanging back any, but was doing some of the hurrying himself. Somebody sings out, Boggs. I looked over there to see who said it, and it was that Colonel Sherburne. He was standing perfectly still in the street, and had a pistol raised in his right hand, not aiming it, but holding it out with the barrel tilted up towards the sky. The same second I see a young girl coming on the run, and two men with her. Boggs and the men turned round to see who called him, and when they see the pistol, the men jumped to one side, and the pistol-barrel come down slow and steady to a level. Both barrels cocked. Boggs throws up both of his hands and says, "'Oh, Lord, don't shoot!' Bang! goes the first shot, and he staggers back, clawing at the air. Bang! goes the second one, and he tumbles backwards on to the ground, heavy and solid, with his arms spread out. That young girl screamed out and comes rushing, and down she throws herself on her father, crying and saying, "'Oh, he's killed him! He's killed him!' The crowd closed up around them, and shouldered and jammed one another, with their necks stretched, trying to see, and people on the inside trying to shove them back, and shouting, "'Back! Back! Give him air! Give him air!' Colonel Sherburn, he tossed his pistol onto the ground, and turned around on his heels, and walked off. They took Boggs to a little drug store, the crowd pressing round just the same, and the whole town following, and I rushed and got a good place at the window, where I was close to him and could see in. They laid him on the floor and put one large Bible under his head, and opened another one and spread it on his breast, but they tore open his shirt first, and I seen where one of the bullets went in. He made about a dozen long gasps, his breast lifting the Bible up when he drawed in his breath, and letting it down again when he breathed it out. And after that he laid still. He was dead. Then they pulled his daughter away from him, screaming and crying, and took her off. She was about sixteen, very sweet and gentle-looking, but awful pale and scared. Well, pretty soon the whole town was there, squirming and scrooging and pushing and shoving to get at the window and have a look. But people that had the places wouldn't give them up, and folks behind them was saying all the time, "'Say now, you've looked enough, you fellows. Tain't right and tain't fair for you to stay there all the time. Never give nobody a chance. Other folks has their rights as well as you.' There was considerable jawing back, so I slid out thinking maybe there was going to be trouble. The streets was full, and everybody was excited. Everybody that seen the shooting was telling how it happened, and there was a big crowd packed around each one of these fellows, stretching their necks and listening. One long lanky man with long hair and a big white furred stovepipe hat on the back of his head, and a crooked-handled cane, marked out the places on the ground where Boggs stood and where Sherburne stood, and the people following him around from one place to the other, and watching everything he done, and bobbing their heads to show they understood, and stooping a little and resting their hands on their thighs to watch him mark the places on the ground with his cane. And then he stood up straight and stiff where Sherburne had stood, 
frowning and having his hat brimmed down over his eyes, and sung out, Boggs, and then fetched his cane down slow to a level, and says, Bang, staggered backwards, says, Bang, again, and fell down flat on his back. The people that had seen the thing said he'd done it perfect, said it was just exactly the way it all happened. Then as much as a dozen people got out their bottles and treated him. Well, by and by, somebody said Sherburne ought to be lynched. In about a minute everybody was saying it, so away they went, mad and yelling, and snatching down every clothesline they come to, to do the hanging with. End of the chapter. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent health care provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.